I'm John Williams. Pete Zimmerman's your producer. Here's Greg McBride, the chief financial analyst at Bankrate. Welcome back, Greg. Great to be with you, John. Happy New Year. The interest rate forecast for 2024. You have an interest rate forecast for us? Yeah, I think, you know, this year is going to be a bit of a turning point. You know, we saw interest rates go up at the fastest pace in 40 years in 2022, 2023. But this is the year where, you know, we see that turn around a little bit. Uh, I do expect interest rates are going to come down a little bit this year. I, I have the Fed cutting interest rates, but only twice. Uh, and not starting uh, until at least June. So it's going to be tilted more toward the back half of the year. Uh, and interest rates took the elevator going up, John, but they're going to take the stairs coming down. So, yes, we do see interest rates coming down a bit this year, but just a bit. I've heard people say five or six revisions to the interest rate. You say two, huh? Yeah, they, it's funny. The uh, market expectations tend to run well ahead of, of where the Fed is at. So, uh, prior to the December Fed meeting, market expectations were uh, that we were going to see about four uh, rate cuts next year. The Fed's September projections indicated about two. Then the December meeting comes out. Fed puts new projections out. They now say three rate cuts next year is their median expectation, and markets immediately price in about six. Huh. <laughs> so. Huh. <laughs> So, yes, you know, the, the, the two is definitely on the low side. And my rationale for that is uh, I, I just think inflation, core inflation specifically, it's going to come down, but at a slower pace and that that's going to tie the Fed's hands in terms of how much they can trim interest rates. If, you know, if inflation, core inflation really only pulls back by half a percentage point from, say, 3% to 2.5%, well, then the Fed's really only going to be able to cut short-term interest rates by about half a percentage point. So that's the, the that's how the sausage is made. That's the uh, sort of the backstory to why I've only got the Fed cutting rates twice this year. Yeah, well, I was wondering about that. So how many times would they do a quarter? Would they do a half? Uh, just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, I've, I've got them cutting interest rates twice, but by a quarter percentage point each time, a uh, total of a half. Uh, you know, market expectations running well ahead of that, calling for much more and starting much sooner. Uh, market expectations, uh, expecting the Fed to start cutting rates as soon as March. I think they're really going to push back on that, um, you know, as the month progresses and we get to the Fed meeting at the end of the month. Uh, I, I have a difficult time seeing how that's going to happen any sooner than June. You know, the the expectation that they're going to be very aggressive cutting interest rates really doesn't jive with the idea of the soft economic land. Uh, to me, you get one or the other, you don't get both. If, if the Fed really has to be aggressive at cutting interest rates, it's probably because we didn't get that soft landing. We had a hard landing. And, you know, on the other hand, if we do pull off that soft economic landing, then, you know, the, the, the Fed doesn't have to get overly aggressive with cutting rates. A hard landing means what? Layoffs and higher prices? Yeah, hard you know, recession. So you know, we've averted that recession, and I think the odds are continuing to improve that we will avert it. Uh, our latest poll of economists, only 45% uh, are expecting a recession in the next uh, 12 months. That's down from about 65% this time last year. So we've seen the improvement in those odds. Uh, soft landing is that sort of mythical uh, area where you get inflation to come down to the desired 2%, but you do it without the economy slowing too much. You, you continue to see economic growth and, and low unemployment. And, you know, the, the history has not been on the Fed's side uh, on, on that. Uh, you know, it really only pulled that off once, arguably, back in 1995. 
But, you know, the odds of them doing it again in 2024 uh, continue to look better and better. As interest rates go down next year, this year, what happens then? What's what's as a result of that? Well, I think the pullback is going to be modest. So you know, I think you know, mortgage rates, you'll see a more defined pullback uh, as uh, throughout the year. Uh, mortgage rates have already come down pretty notably from hitting 8% in October, now down below the 7% mark. And I think that continues, albeit in fits and starts throughout the year. Mortgage rates in the in the sixes most of the year, but dropping below 6% by the end of the year. I've got them finishing the end of the year at 5.75%. Now, hmm. I think that's going to be a fairly even, uh, you know, albeit bumpy, journey uh, to a lower rate. I don't see them necessarily dropping off the table and all of that happening at once. And, and the difference between that is if rates did drop suddenly, uh, very sharply, that's the type of thing that could bring a lot of people back into the housing market. But that's also the type of thing that could push prices up faster. Yeah. Uh, if instead we see a more of a, a measured pullback in mortgage rates uh, throughout the course of the year, uh, you know, you're not going to have a necessarily a surge of demand. But that also, I think, helps keep a lid on on the price appreciation we see. It's funny because five and three quarters starts with a five. It's closer to six, but there's something attractive sounding about Five seven five. Uh, one last question. I need a short answer, but then, what do you think about inflation this year? I think it'll continue to come down, but I, it, it's going to come down at a at a slower pace. Uh, I, I have difficult time seeing how we're going to see core inflation move below two and a half percent, at least by the Fed's measure of, of the core yeah. PCE by the end of the year. Okay, good to talk to you, Greg. Very interesting as always. Thanks for helping us out. Thank you, John. That's Greg McBride, Chief Financial Analyst at Bankrate. Bree Fowler is a senior writer at CNET and CNET.com. Bree, I want to ask you about the AI button on Microsoft keyboards. Um, What is that and when does this roll out? Well, this is going to be the biggest change, at least physical change, to your PC uh, keyboard in about 30 years. Um, Microsoft is, you know, having its new AI button added to the keyboards of PCs. I mean, obviously, Microsoft doesn't actually make computers, but it deals with a lot of, you know, third-party PC makers, and this is going to be rolling out very soon. I'm probably going to see it at CES this month. What happens when I hit that button? Um, if people hit the button, it launches... Um, Microsoft's uh, Copilot, which is its AI chatbot. So um, that'll just pop up and you can ask it questions and, you know, do all the kind of things that you do with any kind of uh, chat GPT or other AI kind of systems. So um, I presume you haven't seen it exactly, but presumably it'll be a field where I'll type in a request? Yeah, um, just like you see chatbots now, it just automatically launches it. Um, you know, the last time when they had automatic buttons added with, with PCs, it was that Windows button that we're all pretty familiar with these days. And then, uh, but uh, but uh, you can tell <laughs> I don't use chatbots. So, because sometimes you will ask it, you know, write me a paper about X, but other times you'd say, give me an image of a watermelon as a donkey, and then it mm-hmm. generates that. It's pretty navigable, pretty simple, you suppose? Yeah, I suppose. I mean, it, it's kind of just a little window that will pop up. All it does is automatically launch, you know, the application that's already there, you know, giving people faster access. And, you know, what it signals more importantly is just kind of how 
you know, if we're seeing hardware changes, AI is probably here to stay, at least for the near term. Yeah, no kidding. And then does Apple have a similar <laughs> button or will they? Uh, you know, there's been no word on that. Apple, you know, they years back launched their little Apple button. So, you know, they have their own little quirky extra buttons and, and things on their keyboards, too. Huh. By the way, um, I watched BlackBerry the other day. And just speaking of, is Apple going to do it? What is Apple doing? Everybody's got to see what Apple's doing. Have you watched <laughs> the movie BlackBerry? I have not, but that that sounds interesting. I do remember having a BlackBerry years ago, and you know, people used to be very, very attached to those things. I remember, Barack Obama couldn't put it down, and in fact, in the movie they said that they had like thirty three percent of the market. Uh, their valuation was X, and they were like. Um, $50 a share, now they're $0 a share, and they're gone. And it's the story, and sort of told documentary style, it's a fictionalization of what happened. It's fascinating. It is so good. So watch it and get back to me on that, will you, please? <laughs> Definitely. Um, you know, I, I just remember back in the day, people were so hooked on that physical keyboard that, you know, when the iPhone rolled out, and the first Android phones, people were just kind of like, well, how are people going to, to deal without those keys, where's, where's you know? Buttons? Where's my click? Yeah, I want exactly. my click. People um, want that, that little noise. <laughs> talk to me about uh, CHIPS funding, and are we going to get some in the Midwest? Well, um, I don't know about the Midwest, but the Biden administration just announced uh, a whole bunch of funding for a plant in Colorado, and a plant in Oregon. These are owned by Microchip Technology. And, you know, it's part of the CHIPS Act that was passed in 2022 to kind of get U.S. semiconductor manufacturing going. Um, the U.S. lags, you know, China, Taiwan, places like that when it comes to production of these things. But we use so many of them in so many different kinds of devices uh, that, you know, it's definitely in our interest to have production here as well. Yeah, but I mean, those are private companies, so we are, I wonder how that works. We're giving hundreds of billions of dollars or millions of dollars to to companies, or are we subsidizing the production of these things? What's the relationship? Well, the problem with, uh, you know, why we haven't seen production of these kinds of chips in the U.S. is that it takes an enormous amount of infrastructure that we just don't have. I mean, building these plants... It, it's different than, you know, building car parts and things like that. You have to have clean rooms. You have to have training for, you know, a super skilled workforce. Um, this isn't just something that you can start overnight. And the chip companies have been putting a whole bunch of money of their own in there. But, you know, the idea is that if you kind of stimulate this growth, you're going to bring in more jobs, more production, and that's going to be more tax revenue for cities, counties, states, everybody. Yeah, I, I'm all for it, I think. I mean, we invest in a whole host of industries, and it seems like we're behind the eight ball on this one. We learned that lesson the hard way when the pandemic started and we couldn't get chips to power our cars. I presume that supply chain issue has largely been, at least for the time being, resolved, right? I don't know if it's been resolved. I think maybe we've learned how to deal with it. But, you know, people, the more when it comes to consumer devices, cars, you know, things like that that people buy, you know, the basic laws of supply and demand kick in. Um, if, there, if there's not enough, enough to go around, then 
you know, things get more expensive, they get harder to find. People aren't really buying stuff at the rate that they were during the pandemic, especially when it comes to things like consumer electronics. But we definitely have seen the impact on the auto industry. You know, those are specialized kinds of chips. And, you know, if, if cars can't get chips, people can't get cars. Fun fact in the New York Times the other day about cars and the computer chips in them, there are more lines of code written into your Jeep Cherokee than there are in a 747, that there are more things that can happen in that. It's hard to believe. I'm just telling you what I read. Um, oh, no, it, it's absolutely true. Um, yeah, cars are so high tech these days. I mean, I, I cover cybersecurity, and every time I go to a conference, People are hacking everything from Jeeps to Teslas to to whatever because cars are so connected. People need the the computing power for, you know, everything from power steering to, you know, driverless cars <laughs> pretty soon. So, you know, it's it's definitely, definitely high tech. I got a pitch to interview somebody from that CES. That's the Consumer Electronics Show. Is that what we're talking about? And it was so much about um, AI and also wearable goggles. At least these were some of the things they thought I might want to talk about. Do you know what the hot topics or trends are going to be there? You know, AI is definitely the thing at CES this year. Pretty much every every panel, every display will have some kind of AI element. We saw this last year. There was a lot of that. but But now it's just completely ramped up. This is how companies think they're going to get attention, if nothing else. And yeah, the the VR goggles, which, you know, with Apple's launch coming up pretty soon, is rumored, um, that, you know, it, it, that is definitely a thing as well. A colleague of mine here got one of those for her son. He plays a couple of games, a baseball game. He plays tag. He plays tag with people around the country. Uh, my nephew has one. He was showing me how to uh, slay dragons with a bow and arrow. I was utterly incompetent at it. Um, it's, it's, uh, th- there's a ramp to learn how to use those things, but they sure do seem to be here to stay, huh? Yeah, I mean, right now, um, AR, VR headsets have been more for gaming, like like you said. The key is, being, is going to be whether they can translate into work and daily life, where they're going to kind of replace a lot of what you would do on your phone or even on your smartwatch. Um, you know, Apple kind of pushed that when they, you know, had the preview of their device last year, being able to read your email or, you know, check text messages, um, do a, a Zoom meeting with your coworkers, that kind of stuff. Now, whether that all catches on and whether, you know, people that, that aren't kids and teens and Gen Z will, will actually be able to learn how to use this stuff remains to be seen. Always nice to talk to you, Bree. That's Bree Fowler, senior writer at CNET. You can read her stuff at CNET.com. Thanks, Bree. Thanks for having me. So another business striking out that is, uh, is staking out? No, striking out. Well, they haven't struck out yet. They are launching their business is what he's trying to say in 2023 and now 2024 in Tinley Park is called Banging Gavel Brews, and they have a brew house. And to tell us a little bit about it, the Vote House Brew Pub is Jim Rickert, who is the co-owner. Hey, Jim, how are you? You're on WGN. I'm doing well. Thank you, John, and thank you for having me. Do your last name for me. Is it Richard or Rickert? Richard. Richard. It's actually easier than it looks. Yeah, (laughs) it's Richard. That's not a German name, is it? It's actually, well, it's close. It's actually French. Um, 
Strasbourg, France is where we originally hail from. I see. But you're not into the wine business. You took a beer making class and you and your brother have decided to launch this business? Yeah, that's true. Um, it was in late um, 2013 um, at um, uh, in uh, on Western Avenue in Beverly. Uh, we took a, a, a you know something to do on a Saturday. Uh, so my brother and I decided to make you know just make a, a beer. Uh, it was a Belgian triple, and uh, to our surprise, it came out fairly decent. Um, so we caught the bug, and one thing led to another. And here we are, um, well, now 11 years later, and um, we, we took that big step. Yeah, the big step of opening up your own place. So had you been making it or selling it on the side before the brew house? Well, actually, John, we, we started as what they call a contract brewery. And uh, actually, we started brewing our beer commercially back in 2000, late 2014 wow. at Church Street. Yeah, Church Street Brewery out in uh, Itasca, Illinois. <clears throat> and we just distributed locally, just primarily for marketing purposes to get our, you know, to get our name and brand out there. While well, we conducted our exhaustive search for our permanent home, and um, we ultimately uh, ended up uh, purchasing the boathouse in uh, June of 2017. And from there, um, you know, started to deal with the historical issues and <laughs> so on and so forth. And then COVID and, you know, uh, finally got the place uh, finished fairly recently. So it took us about six years all in from start to finish. Uh, to describe the interior for me, then. If it's an old house, a lot of the, the brew houses or pubs that we're familiar with are, are pretty expansive, you know, with big tables and that sort of thing. Is yours yeah. more intimate, yeah, or what's it look like? Well, it's, you know, it's, I, would, I would describe it as quaint and intimate. Um, the home was built in 1865 by the, the Lewis brothers, um, and they built it um, primarily, as we understand, as a hunting lodge, uh, which, in my estimation, was quite extravagant for a hunting lodge. But um, so it has an expansive, uh, about an eight foot wide hallway as you enter the structure with, you know, like 12 foot ceilings, um, a very impressive staircase. And then as you enter, you go to your right and you would enter into the main tap room uh, with a Brunswick style uh, um, bar and, uh, you know, the original wooden floors and the brass rail footrests and it's very very um you know uh, beautiful i guess for lack of a better term uh and and uh it fits the time for it it's it's like you're taking a step back in time when you walk into the place it's absolutely it's amazing and it's stunning yeah. When you walk in. And speaking of terms, so the Vote House, this is that old house that people are familiar mm -hmm. with in that area. It's now the Vote House Brew Pub and Beer Garden. And the yeah. brew that you sell there, the brand is Banging Gavel Brews. Is that all correct? Yes. Yeah. 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 Essentially, we call it the Vote House by Banging Gavel Brews. And Banging Gravel because you're an attorney or you have a legal background? That's correct, yeah. I've been practicing since 1989. Yeah. And are you still doing that? Is this going to be your full-time gig <laughs> now? How do you split your time? Yeah, that's a good question and fair. Um, I, I still do practice, and I've been a sole practitioner for 
about 32 years now. What are the special brews? Do you have a whole range? What kind of beer do we get yeah. there? Well, right now we presently have six uh, offerings on tap with a few more in the works. Um, we have a Vienna lager called Face the Music. And we have a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, we, you know, we do try to tie in some legal terminology with other connections like Face the Music, obviously, a Vienna uh, being the home of Strasbourg and Mozart, you know, we wanted to make the music connection and the legal connotation as yeah, well. That's what I thought. Um, of, yeah, we have a hazy IPA called Offshore Trust, which is uh, based on our sales is our most popular beer on tap right now. Uh, we have a Hellas, which is a very easy drinking beer, so we call it Legal Ease. Uh, we have a French saison called Rule of Law. We have a Berliner Weiss called Napoleon's Choice, which was because his troops, uh, the Berliner Weiss was uh, a particular favorite of his troops, apparently, based on my research anyway. And we also have a dry Irish stout called Sad's Law. Um, you may be familiar with Murphy's Law, which basically says that if something can go wrong, it probably will. Yeah. Well, Sad's Law says if something can go wrong, it will go wrong. And we kind of... Oh, not probably. It absolutely will. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, well, you certainly did run into some roadblocks, but it's up and running, has been for uh, less than a month now. Um, but I presume people in the Tinley Park area are well aware of it? Yeah, um, we've been gaining quite a bit of traction since our uh, grand opening, which was on December 14th. Um, so, yeah, people are well aware of it. And we're, we have a lot of events um, that are scheduled for the coming months. Um, we're currently in the planning stages for uh, Super Bowl um, activities on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, we have, we're planning um, an event for St. Uh, Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, uh, uh, the opening, reopening of the beer garden. So, yeah, we have a lot of stuff going on. Any food in the future? Any what? I'm sorry? Food. What about food? So for the food, we have uh, we do have a full kitchen, um, and we, we, we have a shareable concept, um, which we have found that our customers are really receptive to, um, because it's kind of nice to sit with your friends and try different things and, you know, and, 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 you know, sit with a group of people and just, you know, somebody might want to try this, somebody else might want to try that. And you just get to try different things uh, without being committed to one big entree. Yeah. Now, it's the same way with beers, too. I presume you'll do a flight of beers, too, in smaller sizes? Yeah, we do that, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we also have craft cocktails, and we have wine. And, oh, the whole uh, bar menu. Have, you know, wow. Yeah. We have uh, non-alcoholic offerings as well. Okay. So it's uh, Banging Gavel Brews. And what's the address <laughs> over there in Tinley Park? Well, we actually have we actually have two addresses. Um, you know, we have the formal address is sixty eight eleven Hickory Street, um, which is actually quote unquote the legal address, but we're actually known as one seventy four hundred um, Oak Park Avenue uh, because that's the main thoroughfare. So we're right right across south of the tracks um, uh, on the main thoroughfare of Oak Park Avenue in downtown Tinley Park. 
Jim yeah, Richard is the co-owner of Banging Gavel Brews. BangingGavel.com will get you to their stuff, BangingGavel.com. Hey, congratulations, yeah. Jim. It sounds delicious. Sounds like a good idea. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. More business news. Here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute here in Chicago's business news of the day. Consumers are buying less packaged foods, and that's cutting into the bottom line at Conagra Brands. The Chicago-based company has cut guidance for the fiscal year and expects sales to be down 1% to 2%. Conagra says its volume of goods fell 2.9% in the second quarter. The company says inflation curtailed the purchases of some consumers. ConAgra makes Slim Jim's, Duncan Hines cake mix, and Hunt's tomato sauce. Deerfield-based Walgreens reported earnings today and cut its quarterly dividend by nearly 50%. Shares fell 10% after the news and were still down about 7.5% at midday. The drugstore chain is trying to improve its cash flow and has been cutting costs. Walgreens stock has dropped nearly 40% over the last year as the company tries to expand its health care services business. It's laid off about 20% of its staff. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Okay, business of food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Mm-hmm, thank you. And if you're having lunch or are about to, we're going to hear a new investigation about the plastic in your food and drink. And there's a lot of it. That's right. We found very troubling high levels of plastic chemicals in 85 food products that we tested. More from him after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Okay, on the phone is... Brian Ronholm, and I'm Director of Food Policy for Consumer Reports. Which is just out with its investigation showing chemicals related to plastics are in nearly everything we eat or drink. Meat, poultry, seafood, yogurt, soda, fast food, canned goods, etc. And he says these plasticizers, as they're known, get into the food chain at several points. And food packaging is usually the primary source of how these plastics enter our food. Oh, like the meat that's on the styrofoam platters wrapped in plastic? Right. However, it's now evident that these phthalates, plastics, can also get in from processing equipment. Things like tubing, conveyor belts, and the plastic gloves that are used during the production process. And it can even enter directly into foods through contaminated water and soil. Okay, so these chemicals, these plasticizers, are in nearly everything and at high levels, according to Consumer Reports. What's the harm? These phthalates can interfere with the production of estrogen and other hormones. And even minor disruptions in hormone levels can contribute to an increased risk of several health problems, including diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, uh, certain cancers, and even birth defects. Great. And if you're wondering what you can do about this, because so much of it seems to be out of our control, he says while we wait to see if the FDA is going to do anything, there are things you can do to minimize your exposure. So things like avoiding plastic food storage containers, limiting your intake of fast foods, try to eat fresh, minimally processed foods, things like choose wood and stainless steel for kitchen tools, and use water bottles made of glass or steel. Okay, the report came out this morning. People can access it at CR.org or at ConsumerReports.org. On today's food calendar, it's National Spaghetti Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Right now, Elena Agrawal is the vice president of Talent Solutions at P33. Elena, it's John Williams, and you're on WGN. How are you? I am doing well, John. Thank you for having me. I know a little bit about you, or at least your business, but tell us what what P33 is. Absolutely. We're a leading civic organization here in Chicago that's focused on making Chicago a 
top-tier innovation hub and doing so in a way that creates inclusive economic development opportunities for everyone in Chicago. What do you mean by inclusive? Yeah, I mean, making sure that individuals have the ability to take part in the tech sector and the innovation that's happening uh, in Chicago and the broader region. So that means as an individual, as being part of the workforce, uh, starting a business, uh, really being part of all of the exciting things that are on the, the forefront here in Chicago. Sure. And for people who might otherwise be excluded, is this for minorities or low-income people? Is it targeted yeah. that way? But it is a targeted that way, especially the exchange. Um, it's really focused on individuals on Chicago's south and west sides who often are barred from opportunities in the tech sector, either intentionally or unintentionally. So are you a physical location or an online presence? How do people access what you do? Yeah, so the Exchange Chicago is uh, a physical presence. It's actually a first-of-its-kind tech training and workforce hub uh, for Chicago's south and west sides. And our first building is in Grand Crossing down on South Chicago Avenue. Um, and our goal here is really to create a more inclusive economy in partnership with local companies, leveraging the tech sector in order to do so. So that's like the 7,000 block south, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. Um, it's what, 7247 South Chicago, I think. Uh, my point being that that's far south side. Uh, are you recruiting from that area then? Who's using it? Yeah, absolutely. We are absolutely recruiting from the local area. The design behind the exchange is to leverage apprenticeships in order to create access to high-paying tech careers. And what we recognize is um, a lot of individuals in the Grand Crossing neighborhood uh, don't always have high levels of college attainment, and yet that sometimes uh, acts as a barrier for them to access these high-paying tech jobs. And so with the exchange, we're leveraging a model where they don't need those college degrees in order to succeed. So those individuals will be able to come to the Exchange Chicago building, get trained, and go to work all within their local community so that they um, are setting up not just a job but a career in tech. Are businesses then funding this? Are they paying for this training? Yeah, so businesses are a part of this in the sense that they will be the employers that are involved. And in fact, we've actually already got our lead employer involved and ready to go hiring uh, apprentices in January right now. So have you been up and running before? What's the track record of this? Yeah, we are just getting started, and it's pretty exciting. Um, Comer Education Campus has been leading this work for over a year now, really involving local community organizations like CHAMPS, Operation Neighborhood Safety, Ring of Hope, and others for over a year to make sure that this is something that the community wants and is designed in a way that really leverages the community's strengths. Um, And so this year, 2024, is kind of our big uh, push to make sure that we get uh, those jobs and those individuals in. We are working with training providers that are local and national uh, and really starting to get the gears running. So describe for me the ideal candidate for this. Is it somebody that's in high school, out of high school? Do they have a junior college degree? What, who are you looking for? Yeah, great question. Honestly, it's anybody who's got an interest in tech um, and is willing to kind of go through the training, see what specific job opportunities might be for them, and is uh, open to taking an apprenticeship opportunity. I think um, some of the individuals that we've talked about that talked to in this process are those that may not have seen tech as a real opportunity for themselves, just based on what they were able to experience, what their family members are in, et cetera. And the exchange is open to is hoping to ch- change all of that, to start to see tech as a trajectory for every kid in Chicago so that they've got access to these amazing jobs, whether they're part of the community college system, have no college, have some college, hmm. it shouldn't matter. They should, um, will all have access to these great high-paying jobs. Do they pay for the training? 
they would not be paying for the training. The idea is that, that this would be free to the individual as best as possible, um, but then they would be trained while they're an apprentice. And I think while they're an apprentice, uh, they have the opportunity to earn and learn. So they'll be doing the job and also upskilling while they're doing it so that they're able to kind of progress in their career beyond the entry-level position. I appreciate your enthusiasm. I suppose part of the challenge must be conveying that to people who might think, I don't know how to code. I don't have a math degree. I don't fit the prototype of what I think these people are. How do you persuade or find, I presume, young people of color who feel ostracized on the South and West Side? That's a great question, and that's exactly what we're working on right now. I think really starting with those community groups is a huge strength of the exchange. Right? We already know those individuals. Many of them actually attend uh, some sort of programming from the Gary Comer Youth Campus or the Education Campus at some point, and we are showing them that uh, a different future is possible right in their own community. Um, so we're starting with people that we know. We're starting with those community leaders. And we've been working with them for over a year to get that excitement and to get that energy out there. Hmm. Chicago needs stuff like this, don't we? P33Chicago.com. You are the vice president of Talent Solutions there at P33, Elena Agrawal. And is the recommendation for businesses or individuals just to click on your site, Elena? Yeah, actually, I think exchangechicago.org is where you can go to learn a little bit more about the exchange specifically. Uh, and we're looking for support. So please, if uh, you've got any ideas or um, ways that we might get some of that funding secured, we are excited to uh, finish this up and open the building in late 2024. So please email us at uh, info at Good luck, Elena. Stay in touch. We'll be happy to help. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, John.